the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. It's time once again for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, your Listening to AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. So glad you're with us. So is Jeff Sennis. He's engineering for us today. And Andrew Herdliska is producing the show, always does. And I want to introduce you to Terry James. He's in the Little Rock, Arkansas area. His book, Nearing Midnight, as it was in the days of Lot. Terry, uh, so nice to hook up with you and welcome to Orlando. Well, thank you for the invitation, Pat. I appreciate it. I want to hear about the background of this book. What What's going on here? Well, the book is actually, uh, you know, I think a reflection of our time. At least that's what it's intended to be. When I, I believe God, uh, the Lord gave me that, and to uh, write about uh, the nearing midnight. We're approaching the tribulation hour, according to everything we see developing uh, worldwide as far as issues and events and different things Jesus saw, chided the the Jewish uh, Judaizers for not seeing the times they were in when the Messiah had already become among them. And uh, he, like I said, he chided them, he uh, castigated them for that, for not being able to realize the times they were in. So we are to look and examine our times, and uh, that's what this book, I think, does during midnight. I think we're, midnight is going to be the darkest time of human history, according to Jesus. Jesus said, according to, uh, as it was recorded in Luke, uh, or rather Matthew 21, 20, uh, 24, 21, I think it was, Jesus said that it will be uh, the worst time of all human history since the beginning of time, or to that point that he was, or would ever be. Uh, so there's coming a time that's going to be the darkest time in human history, and we've seen some pretty dark times with the Holocaust and so forth. And so uh, Jesus, the Lord himself, telling, talking about this, is the midnight that uh, the book refers to, uh, nearing midnight. And I believe that the issues and events we're looking at as we examine our times, as we were instructed to do, uh, Jesus said, uh, what I say to one, I say to all, uh, watch. In other words, watch the issues and events of your time, the times, to see if the storm approaching and that's exactly what we try to do uh, in, in the Bible prophecy, uh, from the pre-tribulation view of Bible prophecy. And we do see that, that midnight approaching. And um, so, um, you know, some people would call it the doomsday, doomsday clock and so forth. I call it the Armageddon clock because I think we're approaching the time of Armageddon out in the future. Explain more about this doomsday clock in uh, 1947, the world's mm-hmm. top scientist. Uh, atomic destruction. I mean, I'm. I, I need to get that clear in my mind. What's that all about? Well, in 1947, you know, following World War II, uh, the war ended with uh, President Truman uh, ordering two atomic bombs to be be detonated over uh, first Hiroshima and then Nagasaki, 1945, August 45. And uh, that pretty much ended the war. Otherwise, uh, American forces would have had to invade, and many more people would have been lost. But what that did was really set in motion some great fears, uh, particularly even among the scientists who developed it, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer and some of the others, that uh, you know this could mean the destruction, the end of humanity. So they invented, the, the atomic scientists did, the people who, who worked basically on the atomic project, and so forth, uh, invented what they called the Doomsday Clock. In 1947, they presented it. 
And they said it at so many minutes uh, close to the midnight hour, the 12 o'clock hour and the midnight hour, uh, to show how close humanity might be to engaging in a, a third world war that would be the end of humanity. And following the um, the development of um, of uh, the great thermonuclear weapons and tests at Bikini Islands and so forth, well, the doomsday clock they felt became even more relevant, even more important. So the doomsday clock has been set forward or back just by several minutes, really, since uh, the uh, the onslaught of um, uh, the atomic age and and uh, the doomsday clock. It's been set forward or back, depending on the on the um, disposition of the times. Like, for example, during Korea, they probably set it forward. I really don't can't tell you that. And this is, you know, it's a symbolic clock. Of course, they have they have a literal representation of it somewhere. I don't know where, but uh, but um, they set it back or forward depending on the time. Right now, it is very near midnight. Uh, maybe I don't know what the latest is. It goes back and forth still. But because of um, the, the, the things going on around the world, for example, the, uh, the war in Ukraine, with Russia, you know, and Ukraine in a conflict, and then you have what's happened recently with Hamas attacking Israel, and Israel is always uh, surrounded by enemies that uh, wanting to push them into sea or completely eradicate that land. So, so, and, and they're afraid that uh, Israel might be the very um, point on Earth where. Um, that might be the ignition point for a nuclear war because Israel has uh, atomic weaponry and uh, they have the Samson option, they call it, which they will use if they are ever threatened enough that uh, they might uh, lose their uh, lose their position in the world or be, be eradicated as a nation. So that's basically what the doomsday clock is all about. Uh, but yet, it's it's interesting uh, because as you proceed with your book, uh, Terry, there's not one accurate timepiece that signals when the midnight hour approaches for humankind. And you simply say God's prophetic word, the Holy Bible. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want you to expand on that for us. Well, of course, God's word is final. I mean, you know, people like to argue about how old the earth is, even among Christians, you know, how... Um, how many years old it is? Is it millions upon millions or billions, as uh, you know, one famous scientist said? Or uh, is it an early Earth that God created it within the last 8,000 years or so? Well, I'm really not interested in that because um, I'm interested in the future. And uh, and that's what God's Word talks about in, in terms of Bible prophecy. I'm not worried about the past. Well, I believe God did it all, so I'm okay there. But God, uh, God also has said that there's coming a time when uh, when uh, this midnight will be reached and man's final hours will be reached. Jesus said that if he did not return when he when he did or when he does, there should be no flesh be saved. Well, certainly with nuclear weapons and everything else, you can see that, and man's going to be gathered to fight man's final war in the plains of Armageddon, Jezreel. And so God's word plainly tells that. Uh, uh, that that's what his clock is based on. That's why I call it in the book, I think, the Armageddon clock uh, rather than the doomsday clock because it's Armageddon is, is midnight for mankind. In other words, that's going to be the darkest the darkest period of all human history at that moment when they gather in the... All the all the armies of the world gather there at uh, in the plains of Jezreel there in northern Israel in that triangular valley that Napoleon says was the, the greatest uh, battlefield on earth. They're going to gather there and uh, to fight one another. And, of course, Jesus at that time is going to break through the blackness of the clouds, it says, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And uh, they're going to see him, and they're going to turn all their weaponry from each other onto him, trying to stop him. Foolishness, to be sure. But but that's when, that's when you know, the, the, the night is darkest just before the dawn. That's going to be the dawn of uh, of the next age, which is the millennial age. Tell me about the book of Revelation, where that all fits here, uh, Terry, and uh, how we should study that book. Well, you know, people are promised a blessing. That's the one book in the Bible that you're promised a blessing if you read it and heed it. In other words, you read it and you believe it and you act accordingly to that. Everybody says, even pastors are reluctant to preach on it because it's too complicated, it scares people, whatever, or it's just a kind of a 
something that's out there, you know, that, that's not really meant to be, uh, not meant for our time. It's just kind of an ethereal type thing that God wanted everybody to know uh, something about us. For, but it's not really truth. Most, even pastors don't believe it's absolutely going to happen. They believe it's there just to make mankind act better. But uh, the fact <laughs> is, it's there uh, for a purpose, and God says those who read it and heed it will be blessed. And, of course, it starts out with um, with Jesus himself talking to the churches, the seven churches of, um, of the Middle East, where Christianity began, and he does it in a way that... Uh, that uh, explains uh, how how they have reacted to humanity, whether they've done good or bad with regard to preaching the gospel and whether or not they remain true to God's uh, calling for the churches. And then the churches are mentioned no more. The churches, uh, uh, the Christian churches are mentioned no more after after the last verses of, uh, of uh, Revelation chapter 3. And uh, they mentioned the church or the saints are mentioned, or the church age saints are mentioned no more until Revelation 19:11, when Christ, when they return with Christ. Now, um, following that uh, third chapter of Revelation, where God finishes, He says, Revelation verse three, verse ten says, um, uh, chapter three, verse ten says that we're not appointed to wrath, to God's wrath, which is what the tribulation is, in which uh, the, the book of Revelation talks about the, the tribulation era, the seven years period, Daniel's 70th week, as we call it. And, but it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It'll be the total revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in all his majesty and glory when he comes back. But following uh, chapter 3 of Revelation, then we see Paul, who was given the given the task while on Patmos, he's given a vision of this whole period that would unfold and would be called the Revelation. Uh, and he, John was told, um, come up hither. He heard a voice saying, come up here. And it was a voice of Christ. It was the voice of God and the voice of Jesus Christ calling him into heaven. And he saw all these wonders from heaven uh, in his vision, in his in his spirit. Of course, he was called in, in spirit to into the heavenlies. And um, it starts out uh, basically, you know, with um, chapter 6 of, of Revelation. It talks about um, how the the various uh, things that would unfold. And first of all, the white horse, the rider on the white horse and the rider on the red horse, followed by the rider on the black horse. And then uh, the final, the fourth horse is uh, the chorus or green, deathly color, colored horse. And the first horse, the white horse, as we believe, is, is is Antichrist coming on the scene. Hold your uh, thoughts there, Terry. I don't. Yeah. I, I just when we come back, we got to take a break, and I want you to pick up exactly where you are because this is fascinating. Okay. Our guest is Terry James. He's in the Little Rock area. Uh, I'm Pat Williams. This is the Saturday Power Hour. It's AM nine ninety, FM one hundred one point five. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back with Terry James. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Terry James' book is out. It's called Nearing Midnight, As It Was in the Days of Lot. And Terry, I want you to pick up exactly where you were before the break, please. Okay, well, John is in heaven. He is the, John the Apostle has been called. He is the one that was chosen uh, on the Isle of Patmos. Patmos. He was uh, relegated there by the Emperor of uh, Rome uh, as a anti-Christian. He was, uh, excuse me, my clock's going off here. Um, let me get, I'm sorry, I forgot to turn that off. Uh, anyway, um, so John, John is there in um Relegated to Patmos by the Roman Emperor, and uh, so he's in he's in exile, and he gets his vision, and he's been now he's been called up to uh, uh, into the presence of God, and he sees the he sees the twenty four elders sitting on the throne around God, which means it's the church members, the church people of the church who is have been raptured into heaven, and John that's a symbol of God's uh, rapturing the church, and calling John into heaven. And he sees all these wonders, and then he's given all of these uh, revelations. The first is Antichrist to come on the scene. The second 
is the red horse. The white horse is the Antichrist will come on the scene, John has shown. The second is the red horse of war. There will be great war. And I believe this is where everybody worried about World War Three. Well, that's not going to happen until God is ready for it to happen, I can tell you. And so uh, John saw the red horse of war, and uh, much of the earth will be destroyed as part of that ongoing war, and I believe part of that will be nuclear. Um, and then the, the, the third horse is the black horse of death. Well, that follows naturally upon great warfare. You know, so many people are killed and and all this kind of thing. And then... Um, and then uh, there's disease and pestilence and all of these things wrapped up in that because of uh, warfare, dead bodies, and all of these kind of things. And then the last is the chlorus, uh, where uh, the chlorus-colored horse, the light green, I guess you would say is like cadaverine and, and that kind of thing that happens when cor- corpses start decaying, the chlorus-colored horse. And that what shows that... Um, that um, that this is total death, much much death in the world, and it's followed uh, it's followed by um, by uh, just total devastation, total total death. So the four horses of um, of uh, the apocalypse, it's called, are shown here, and then uh, then John sees a series of twenty one judgments from God. Of course, a big part of the judgment will be that Antichrist is allowed to rule on earth, and he is Antichrist, just like uh, just like the term implies. And uh, he said, Satan's man, indwelt man here on earth, uh, the last great dictator, and he will he will be dictator of most most of the world. So John has shown a series of twenty one judgments in in in, in seven scrolls. Uh, when John is given a scroll, and Jesus is the only one who is able to open it. Jesus opens the scroll, and uh, then these, uh, and there's, there's seven uh, judgments there, seven scrolls of judgment, and at the last, uh, the seventh of the scroll, there's a, that that opens up seven more judgments, uh, which are the trumpet judgments. There are seven trumpet judgments. At the end of that, uh, it announces the last set, the trumpet judgment announces the final set of judgments, which will be the most terrific of all, and that are the bold judgments or the vile judgments. And this is God's total wrath coming upon earth. It says that men will be very rare on earth by the time this is finished because there will be so much death and decay and destruction. The last, it'll be the last uh, rider of this uh, this chorus horse that uh, that will uh, destroy earth or, you know, symbolically, uh, the last horse. So Earth will be basically destroyed by the time uh, every all the armies of the world are now in conflict with each other. The hatred has grown so great. All the nations that are left on Earth, the Antichrist forces has most of the have most of the the forces of uh, the Western war alliance. We believe world, and then China, we believe, will be uh, will be the king of the kings of the East that will come from. Uh, Come from east of the dry of the Euphrates River, where demons are said to be uh, whole, be, uh, being held beneath this until the time of these 200 million man army from the east, called the Kings of the East, ride forth. And I believe that that will be led by China, the King of the Kings of the East. They will be entered by these demons uh, that dwell beneath the Euphrates River. And that's the barrier between the Occidental world, the Western world, and the Eastern world, the, the um, Oriental world. And uh, and it'll be dried up so that this, these forces can come across. And the Bible says in Re- Revelation chapter 9 and verses 16 that this force will destroy one-third of all of the Earth's uh, population. So already many will have been killed, but then another third is killed, what's left um, a third are murdered by these forces. Of course, that has to involve, we believe, nuclear conflict. And then, of course, China is coming to do battle at Armageddon at this time, or China, I say the kings of the east, coming to do battle with the Antichrist forces and all the Western world forces. And they're going to do battle on the Armageddon. This is a place Napoleon called the greatest battlefield of all the world. And, uh, and the Bible says that, and again, in Revelation 19:11 says that at that moment when it, things are just about to come to a head and probably the whole world will uh, be destroyed uh, from nuclear weaponry and everything else, Jesus breaks through the clouds. 
he, I think he will, by the sword of his mouth, it says, simply speak the word, and all these forces will literally burst open. Uh, it says blood will flow to the bridle's rein, and that's pretty high, you know, from a horse's, from the ground to the reins of a bridle on a horse. And uh, so Jesus will just speak the words, and, and I believe that every person on earth will, every person, every 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 uh, soldier will just simply burst open, and then blood will flow. At that moment, at the same time, one of the last judgments is great hailstones, a hundred pounds each or more, will will fall from earth uh, as a part of the judgment. And as Hal Lindsey, uh, the one who wrote the Great Planet, mm. Great Planet Earth, would say. Uh, that many, that many stones that just flattens the whole earth, in particular this area of Armageddon, mixed with all that blood and gore, will certainly cause a river of blood to flow. So it all makes sense. But uh, but that's basically it. Jesus comes and then he establishes uh, his millennial reign, a thousand years reign on earth of peace, prosperity, and, and wonderful times. Terry James is with us, and he's teaching us in in a powerful ways in in little rock arkansas area the book nearing midnight as it was in the days of lot i want you to talk about that subtitle terry as it was in the days of lot uh, well this is where this is one of my fit? favorite uh, subjects uh pat because um because i believe this is the one prophecy that jesus himself spoke the lord of heaven the creator of the universe spoke himself. I believe he told us exactly where we are at this moment in time. It's Luke chapter 17, verses, well, verses 28 through 30, but basically I want to talk about verses 28 through 30, not 20. It says in 26 through uh, 26 that just like it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, meaning the coming of Christ. But I want to talk about the the, the second one, uh, verse beginning with verse 28, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Where they were buying, selling, they were they were planting, building, marrying, giving in giving in marriage. They were doing all kinds of things normal, business as usual. It was business as usual in Lot in, in Lot's day, and that is in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot lived in Sodom. He was a judge in the city's gate. In other words, he adjudicated uh, both you know all kinds of all kinds of, I guess, uh, legal uh, legal actions and all kinds of things. He was an administrator, one of the administrators of this great city, uh, Sodom. And uh, But underneath the surface at night, particularly, there was the most wicked, evil generation uh, of people that ever existed, probably until our time. Um, just a tremendous uh, undercurrent, uh, you know, and, and one of the reasons that... Um, God, God knew what was going on, but he, he wanted to send his representatives down to Abraham, Lot's uncle, who lived outside of, uh, outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, he, he brought his angels down. And we believe one of them was a theophany, a, um, a, a, a pre-appearance of Jesus Christ to Abraham. We believe he was one of the people that came down with the three angels, and uh, the two angels. And... Uh, God told uh, Abraham, and, uh, Lot's uh, uncle, that you know we're going. I'm going to send these uh, men down, and they appeared as men. Send these men down to see what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm you know I'm getting ready to destroy this wicked place. And and, and of course Abraham was aghast. He he didn't want to see that. He had compassion for those people, and particularly for he was worried about his Lot and his uh, Lot's family. And he begged the Lord not to destroy, and said, "If you can find, got down, it started out with I think fifty righteous people. If you can find fifty righteous people, I believe it was, uh, will you not destroy it?" And God said, "Yes, if I can find fifty righteous, I won't." And he kept going down to forty and thirty, and all, all the way down to I think ten righteous people. If you can find ten or five, would you would you destroy? Will you still destroy? And God said, "No, I won't. If I can find five, well." The Lord could not find five people that were righteous in that whole city, and uh, and so the men went down into Sodom, and uh, of course uh, Lot was aghast because it was at night time, and he said, "Come in!" Told these men to come in here and come behind our doors because it's not safe to be out there. And then we know that the, the men of of, uh, of Sodom surrounded Lot's house and demanded that. Uh, that that they send the men out so that we can know them, he said, you know, sexually. Uh, they, were, they were ravenous, uh, homosexual.
homosexual people. I have no other way of saying it. All the men and young men of the city gathered about the Bible says, and that that account is found in Genesis, of course, of chapter nineteen. Uh, uh, yeah, chapter chapter nineteen of Genesis, and um, so. Uh, Lot went out and said, no, please, I'll send you my daughters. Now, that shows me that Lot, Lot wasn't always righteous either. I'll send you my daughters out. Do with them as you will. But no, they wanted those men. They wanted them to come out. Well, the angels were in there. They blinded the whole group of men that had, and the whole city of men that had surrounded the area so that they couldn't they couldn't feel their way around. And they still looked for them, they said, even blinded. And the angels took the Lot, uh, his two daughters, and his wife, Lot's wife out toward the city of Zor, which is a city far away, and just mysteriously took them out, just uh, supernaturally took them out. And uh, the wife, the wife looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Now we don't know exactly what that's all about, but she obviously was not a truly righteous person in God's eyes, because He only took out the righteous. And uh, another thing we don't know is, you know. How could how could a righteous man uh, offer his daughters to this ravenous man? Terry, yeah. uh, I, I, listen, I wish we had a whole hour with you, but <laughs> we've run out of time. Uh, Terry James, you've been listening to him, and boy, has he been teaching us. And, and go get his book, Nearing Midnight, as it was in the days of Lot. Uh, we've got to take a break, and then we've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Terry James, our guest from Little Rock, Arkansas, in that first segment. Boy, he did some teaching nearing midnight as it was in the days of Lot. Well, we go from the Little Rock area all the way out to Sacramento, California area. Reb Bradley is there, and his book is out. It turns out women aren't crazy, understanding the mind of a woman. Well, Reb, welcome to Orlando, and uh, I'm eager to talk to you. Well, I am glad to be with you. I, I am excited to talk about the book. Uh, how did this book come about? Why is it important? Well, because uh, I have found I, I have I was a pastor for years. I retired about twenty years ago, and then uh, I ended up just doing a ministry to men, and uh, with a website. And I found that the the vast majority of men, at least fifty one percent, don't understand their wives, and, and maybe it's up to ninety percent of men don't understand why their wives do what they do, and uh, men just think there's something wrong with my wife. Men, when they're away from women, men look at each other like women are crazy. Now, they don't admit it in front of women for the most part unless they're uh, trying to uh, um, uh, gaslight their wife. They might try to convince her that she's crazy. But privately, men just say women are crazy. And I thought my wife was emotionally unstable for years until I began to really pay attention to her coaching. And she began to explain to me how women think. So... If men could understand their wives, marriages transform. I have found that for the last uh, probably 12 years since I've been doing full-time men's ministry. So how does a man gain gain insight into his wife's heart? Well, men are in a position, they're designed differently from God. And if a man could understand that, or if he could gain insight into just simply reading the book, that'll make a huge difference. But let me back up if I could. When a woman first decides she wants to marry a man, it's because she's concluded he is safe with my heart. In other words, she marries trusting herself to her husband, her future husband. On the Unfortunately, uh, right after we get married, most men stop doing the things they were doing to cause his future wife to trust him. And we uh, women, once they, we marry, women start feeling devastated, start feeling hurt, start feeling neglected and unimportant. So if a man, I don't remember your precise question, but I hope this is answering it. But 
over a period of time, women feel like they can't survive their man, or they just learn to coexist in a relationship. My wife had learned to coexist, and uh, there was so much we had to learn along the way, but the coexisting is not bliss. My wife and I are 45-plus years married, and we we enjoy bliss. I mean, it's just amazing. We we just want to be with each other, want to a nonstop. It wasn't always that way. For years, even during the ministry, she wanted to leave me a couple times a year because uh, I didn't get her. But fortunately, I get her now, and that's what I wish for every man. Now, I don't remember your precise question, so if I haven't answered it, ask it again. Reb Bradley is our guest. The book, it turns out, Women Aren't Crazy. So, Reb, uh, you have been listening uh, to your wife uh, intensely for almost 50 years. Is that the key, listening to your wife? Well, not very few women are articulate and outspoken. Um, you, Most women, you say, what's wrong? They say, nothing. Are you okay? I'm fine, they say. They don't reveal. My, I don't have a wife like that. My wife will say things like, uh, here's what you wanted to have said to me. And then I would say, why would I say that? And then she'd explain how she perceived what I said. So not, not all men just listening to their wife will make a difference. They must understand the framework from which their wife speaks. Now, my wife is busy explaining to me, here's my heart. Here's what I'm motivated. Here's what's going wrong. And uh, I would listen. And we'd watch movies together. And then I would pause the movie and I'd say, Honey, to me, what that woman character in the movie just did is nuts. And me as a man. But you knew she was going to do it. You were yelling at the TV screen, telling her to do it. What's going on in a woman's mind when she does such things? And it made all the sense in the world as I listened to her. And so I can't just tell men, listen to your wife, because uh, the wife may not be communicating in English or with her body language what her heart is feeling. But if a man can understand what motivates the wife, what, how she is designed differently, it'll change everything. And let me see if I can give you an example. Yes. I have a, t- I have a T-shirt that says, that I created just to stir conversation. The T-shirt says, a woman doesn't start arguments, she shares her heart. And I have multiple women come up to me and say, point at the shirt and say, yes. I was at the airport for a conference this weekend. I wore it in the, air, in the airport, and women were staring and reading it and smiling at me and pointing as I walked by. I stood at different places. Women would read the shirt. I go to Home Depot, and women are responding to this. In fact, there, there's times I have said this comment at a, a gathering of some kind. Women don't start arguments. They just share their hearts. In other words, they share their fears. They share their concerns. And... Uh, women will start to cry. It's very common. When I just say the phrase, women don't start arguments. They share their hearts. They're looking for validation. They're looking for understanding. They they don't necessarily want to be rescued. But unfortunately, we men uh, respond wrongly. A woman says, here's what I'm concerned about. Here's my fears. And a man says to himself, why is she attacking me? Mm. And so we get defensive. All she's done is share something, but we take it personally. She's saying, I'm failing in some way. So we get defensive. But if a man could learn to ask himself, not say anything and say, what is my wife afraid of? What is she concerned about? Is it finances? Is it broken relationships? Is it the children? Is it home projects? What What is she concerned about? Instead of defending ourselves, look at her and speak with empathy and say things like, that must be really hard. It must be difficult to go through what you go through. I'm so sorry. I have done this, and I could see why you would feel that way. In other words, empathy is is great power to our wives. So I hope that makes sense, what I'm saying. I'm I'm kind of shooting all over the place here. Reb, it does. It makes makes great sense. Um, Here's the next thing I want to ask you about. Uh, do you think um, wives or, and women's girlfriends understand them perfectly? 
<laughs> and, and, well, and we that, don't? Go ahead. Yes, yes. And I, that was partly what started me on this path. I, I was a basic male, clueless to how my wife was feeling. And a, one of her girlfriends might say to me, how's, how's your wife doing? How's Beverly doing? And I'd say, fine. And she'd look at me and shake her head. Mm. I didn't know. But I, when I watched her with her girlfriends, they would talk to each other and they would follow. They would hug each other and say, "Oh no, so sorry." And they would hug each other. They expressed empathy for the emotion of what the other person was feeling. And so, as a young married guy, young meaning fifteen years into it, I would try to express empathy, but it was more of a manipulative technique. It was me trying to give her some poor babies and some hugs, and but it was. I didn't understand really her need. I just knew that was a way to get out of trouble, if you will. And that that's why the book finally developed in the last 10, 15 years. I finally was able to start writing this all out for guys mm. to understand what's really going on, what motivates her. And, you know, I can't give you the course of the whole book right now, but ultimately it has to do with design. God is, when when God created Man. It says he created man, male and female. So it didn't create men. He created man, humans, mm. humans, male and female. And it says in his image. So men have aspects of God and women have other aspects of God. And my conclusion is the heart of God was as deep and full of compassion. Women have greater doses of that. So the very thing that annoys us or or frustrates us about our wives, their emotional nature, is actually just reflecting the heart of God, the depth of the emotions of God. If we begin to understand what motivates them to say what they say, to do what they do, their their frustrations in our, our married life, what is that rooted in? It makes a huge difference. Bottom line is women are always crying out to be understood. Have you ever seen, just curious, if you've ever seen that video on YouTube, it's not about the male. <laughs> Have you ever seen it? Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that video that's on all over YouTube, it's not about the male. If uh, your listeners have not had a chance to hear it, just search that phrase on YouTube, it's not about the male. And my wife loves that video. The, her girlfriends love the video. And men are baffled by it. But... Uh, Here's this girl, uh, the woman is speaking. She's got a nail sticking out of her forehead. And mm. she says, uh, I, my, my head hurts. It, <laughs> I, my aches. My sweaters get snagged. And, and he says, well, if you could just pull that nail out. In other words, he offers the solution. But she says it's not about the nail. And bottom line, our wives don't necessarily want solutions. They don't necessarily want, they want to be understood first. They're looking for empathy first, and then w perhaps want to be rescued. Reb Bradley is our guest. He's uh, out on the West Coast near Sacramento. The book, it turns out women aren't crazy, understanding the mind of a woman. We have another segment with um, with Reb, and when, we, when he comes back... Um, I'm fascinated uh, with the many, many, many thousands of men that he's helped restore their broken marriages. And so, when we come back, I want uh, I want Reb to uh, to talk to those people who are struggling with a broken marriage. I'm Pat Williams. It's the Saturday Power Hour. It's AM nine ninety and FM one hundred one point five. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Reb Bradley has written a book. Uh, it turns out women aren't crazy. And Reb, before the break, you, uh, you heard me uh, set up what I want you to talk about to those men who are listening who might be dealing with a broken marriage or one that's getting broken, um, how do you help them? What do you say to them? Well, let me try to explain it this way from the foundation up. As I was saying prior, 
when a, a man wants to win a woman, a woman, he is going to pursue her. Ultimately, it's like fishing. He figures, what bait do I need? What, what bait do I put on the hook to get this woman to say, I'll marry you? And so he, he offers, whether it's soft music, candlelight, you know, writing poems, you name it, dinner's out. He's ultimately winning her heart. Oh, and she concludes, if she agrees to marry him, she concludes, this man is safe with my heart. I will give my heart to him. Because he's shown that when I speak, he listens. When, when I am with him, he makes me feel valuable and safe. He validates me. But what happens is, that was like fishing to us. And so when you're fishing, you catch your fish, you take it home to eat for dinner. You put away your tackle after you cut your fish, you go home and, and, and you go home with it. Whereas we treat our marriages like that. So we pursue a wife. She says, yes, I'll marry you. And on the wedding day, we say, I do. But then a man says, I'm done. Why would he keep fishing when he's already caught his fish, if you will? He caught his wife. But that causes our wives to feel brokenhearted and disappointed and and not valuable and unvalidated. In fact, to many women, it's like she's being emotional by the neglect alone or the way he speaks to her. It's like she's being slapped emotionally time after time. And after a few years of that, or a few months, depending on the woman, after a time, a woman finally says, I can't bear with that. Mm. And she seeks to file for divorce and says, I'm out of here. This can't, I can't survive this anymore. And so guys will say, well, then I'll take her on dates. I'll say, send her romantic letters. I'll, I'll confess all my sins. I will let her know everything I think and what I'm repenting of and changing. But that doesn't win a woman's heart. You see, we lose their trust. The only thing in my experience as a, as a husband counselor, the only thing I've seen that will restore tr- uh, a relationship is if a man can restore trust. And so the way... The only way I found that guys can restore trust with their wives is if they can uh, express empathy, not to write a letter. For example, I encourage men on my website, I encourage men to write a particular letter. I actually give them coaching what needs to be in the letter, what needs to not be in the letter. But ultimately, it's a letter of empathy where you're able to say, I've neglected, you felt been so neglected for so long. I've neglected you or I've treated you poorly, and that must be horrible. You married me looking to, for love and for safety. You looked to, and yet I left you feeling neglected and unimportant. That's horrible. I wouldn't want that for our daughter, let alone I want that. I don't want that for you. you you've given yourself. You've poured your life out for the children. You've laid your life out for them. I mean, you're tired at the end of the day. You've given so much, and yet... I, I've not been there. You've done it alone. You must have felt like a single mom for so many years. Mm. I come home from work, and I, I do my own thing, and yet you waited all day to see me. And I treat you like you're just just a concubine. You know, you're just, I would just want to be intimate in bed. But you see what I'm saying? That if a man is able to say to his wife, I can't believe what you've gone through with me. You see, it's not about him confessing wrongs. So if a guy ever sends a letter and says, here's all the things I've ever been wrong, she'll just agree with him and be mad. You're right. That's how you blew it. Mm. Nope, I have no hope. You were doing. You don't want to send a letter of apology. You don't ever say, I'm sorry. You say, it's horrible what you've been through as a result of what I've done. Because the emphasis in that kind of a letter or conversation is what his wife is actually feeling and going through. That causes a woman. That doesn't mean your wife will run and jump into your arms, but it'll mean that uh, the the door to a heart she slams shut will likely be open. I've seen guys use the letter I coached them to write, who said to me they were astonished how quickly their wife's heart opened back up to them. And I've always warned guys just because you send her this letter of empathy and understanding. Um, it doesn't mean that she'll run and jump into your arms, but it will mean she'll start watching you to see if the words to the letter are true. Mm-hmm. She'll start looking to you. Every woman just desires to be safe. I mean, if a man put up with what he felt, what felt like he was putting up with, what a woman feels like she's enduring with her husband for a long time, men would have bailed out a long time ago. But the wife hangs in there and hangs in there 
and hangs in there until she reaches a place where she says, I can't handle this pain anymore. And that's what a guy must see. You've just been trying to survive me. And that's horrible what you've gone through. I want you to be happy. I want you to, to know how much you're loved. How often makes sense what I'm saying. Hey, Reb, how often do you see a, a marriage that is really, really uh, in deep, deep trouble with what you've been sharing with us? Uh, how often can it be brought back? How often can a, a dead marriage be rekindled? Well, it, it's because we're involved, God is involved in this, and it's not just. Uh, um, the techniques of restoration, I cannot count how many. I can count how many I've seen it, so I, I don't know a percentage, but I've heard from multitudes of men and wives thanking me for the website and the fact they got help. And uh, I've seen marriages, one, one couple that was uh, married 30 years, and uh, they got divorced. But within three years, with help, they got restored. Mm. Uh uh, it's very common. One one fella contacted me. He said, "Please, can you help me? My divorce is going to be final next Monday, <laughs> and I'm I had thirty guys ahead of him. I was helping, and so I just said, look, here's here's how to write a letter. Here's the things not to say. Here's the things that would be wisest to say.' And I told him all that, and ultimately he wrote his his letter. But it was after the divorce was final. He finally gave it to her. He actually called me. He said, is it worth it? The divorce was final today at court. It's all done. And I just said, yes, absolutely. You want to mend her heart. See, the goal isn't, here, how can I restore us? It's about, I wounded someone so severely that she had to escape me to mentally and emotionally survive. I mean, if you step on someone's foot, and they're in pain. You say, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. And you run to get them ice for their crushed foot or you take care of them because you feel badly. So if you come to the awareness, I have wounded my wife. Oh, my goodness. You, the natural response is to, to uh, do something to repair, if you will, to help. And so th that, that's why it's not just about the techniques. It's about you restoring it. So let me finish the story. So this guy gives his letter that he wrote to his wife, and the divorce was final. And they lived, uh, they'd been separated for months, and the divorce was final. And uh, he, how can I say this? He, he was at home the next day, and his wife is out jogging, and they had no children apparently, and she jogged by to stop and thank him for the letter, which he, he gave to her that evening. Make a long story short, she was flirting with him every day because she didn't really want the divorce. She just couldn't bear the pain anymore. But once she saw she had hope in the relationship, she began to pursue it. And they were restored in their marriage because he pursued her after the divorce. And that's not uncommon in my experience because no woman wants to throw away her marriage. She gave herself to it. I mean, it could be 20, 30 years before the divorce, but she, before they, she decided to leave. But it wasn't impossible at all that it requires that a man understand his wife's heart, understand how she felt wounded by him, and is able to speak to her with empathy, even saying there's something like, like, uh, I can't blame you for wanting to keep away from me. You've been wounded by me so many times. I am so sorry that I put you through that. You don't deserve that. You deserve my protection and my safety. I wish I had seen you throughout a marriage like I see you now mm. because you're, you're a treasure and I have not treated you that way. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Reb Bradley, boy, oh boy, does it make sense. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's delivering hard truths to us men. Uh, the book, it turns out women aren't crazy understanding the mind of a woman. And, and Reb, uh, I think the word that is, is, is sticking with me through this talk is, is the word trust. That seems to keep popping up here. That's it. A man who wants to be good with his wife is not about flowers and it's not about romance. It's about trust and restoring trust. 
A woman needs to know that her heart, her emotions are safe with this man. Now, if a guy's been physically violent with his wife, she needs to know she's physically safe. But that's the minority of of marriages I deal with. The vast majority are clueless guys (laughs) who are neglectful. Yeah. Pardon me? Rabbi, I can can picture it now. The pursuit, the marriage... Uh, the attitude, well, the marriage, that, that's done. Now let's go and build the business and let's, uh, let's work on the golf game and uh, let's, uh, let's find some good fishing holes, yeah, you know, to, to, to get after. And, and let's, uh, sure. let, let's find a good spot for all the guys to get together and we can play a little poker. You know, that's, uh, that's what we're working on now. The marriage is, is done and the wife is saying, I want to be courted. I want to be romanced. I, 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 uh, you know, I want you to uh, really be interested in what I'm doing. I want to hang out with you, you know. Anyway. Every woman wants to be understood. She wants to feel valued. She marries a man to feel valued the rest of her life. And we do things to make them, our wives, not feel valued. My Rev- wife and I used to do a seminar called Happiness in Marriage. And we were happy in our marriage, but we concentrated on just doing our roles. But my wife could not reveal her real heart to me. Uh, She wasn't safe with me, but we were happy. I was a pastor, and we were happy doing our seminars. But I was not safe with her. I probably didn't start getting safe to her till about 15 years ago or so. She began to see I was safe because I began to be safe with her heart. I finally was understanding it. You know, it's interesting, but, but we men need to remember the text in First Corinthians or First Peter chapter three verse seven. It says, "Live with your wife in an understanding way." Mm. First, First Peter, say that first again. Peter three seven. Okay, I'm First good. Peter three seven. That's the uh, ESV, I think, version, and another maybe New American Standard says that as well. Reb, we, I got a, Reb, we've run out of time, but I'm so grateful. Reb Bradley has been our guest. Get the book. It, it, it turns out women aren't crazy. I'm Pat Williams. You've been listening to the Saturday Power Hour right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. We'll see you next weekend. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.